Welcome to Your Personnel File, a podcast at Army Human Resources Command. Your Personnel File explores the programs, policies, and initiatives designed to serve you, the soldier, veteran, and family member. Now, let's join our host, Master Sergeant Glenn Riddell, and find out what's inside Your Personnel File at HRC. Hello, everyone. I'm Master Sergeant Glenn Riddell, and on this edition of the HRC Personnel File, we're talking about the Past Conflict Repatriations Branch, an organization under the Army Casualty and Mortuary Affairs Operations Division at Army Human Resources Command. Every year, the remains of more than 60 soldiers from World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam War are returned to their families around the country to finally be laid to rest in their hometowns or in national cemeteries around the world. Here with me today, to talk about the PCRB's role in the return and burial of these service members is Greg Gardner, the chief of the PCRB. Greg, first welcome, and we appreciate you being here. Well, thanks, Glenn. I appreciate it. I, uh, I am really looking forward to having this uh, uh, talk and, and inform people, people about what we do. Yeah, because I don't think many folks know exactly, one, the HRC and the Adjutant General Director and the Casualty Emergency Affairs Division is, and your branch, you know, have this big, important mission, right? Um, so first, uh, you know, you want to give the audience a little bit uh, about yourself, tell them a little bit about yourself, and then we'll jump into what your branch does. I am an old soldier that's uh, been doing this for uh, about 35 years now, um, and uh, part of that was on active duty, and uh, then uh, became a civilian. Um, all the folks that uh, work with me are civilians uh, that work this mission, um, and our role uh, here is really the family. Um, it is the both the start and the end of the casualty mission uh, for past conflicts. Uh, this started many times back in the 1940s, uh, 50s during the Vietnam War, uh, later, and it's still going on and we're still working with those same families. So That's interesting. Um, so I have a lot of questions because this is, uh, I think this will be interesting to our, uh, our listeners. But I would assume that the, the start point for your branch in their mission, right, the starting point would be identification of the service member and the recovery of uh, their remains. Is that, is that a true statement? Well, it actually starts before that. Okay. Um, one of the problems uh, in the identification process is we still have to find family. And you can imagine that the families that were alive and the Army worked with, say, back during World War II in the 1940s, are probably no longer alive. Right. Um, and so we're now dealing with nieces, nephews, cousins, um, and those individuals we never had contact with. We didn't maintain contact over the years. So we are, our, our start point for families is trying to identify them, first of all, and we do that with uh, genealogists, professional genealogists that do research on those families. We locate them and that's the first time we reach out to the families. That gives us our start point uh, for them. Okay, no, that makes sense. And how is your office notified um, of these remains were found and identified, uh, you know, in whatever past conflict area of operations? How does that work? So the Department of Defense maintains a list of all the unaccounted for service members from the three conflicts, three primary conflicts that, that, were, that the department is responsible for. World War II, 
Korea, and Vietnam. Um, we also work a few things like uh, the Cold War, which is a defined conflict by the department. Um, but those three conflicts are, encompass the vast majority of cases that we have. Um, so we know up front who was lost and who was not found and, and identified. The Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency is the organization that in the department is responsible uh, overall for the mission. Um, they're responsible for the recovery, the identification, um, and in many cases disinterment of service members buried in national cemeteries as unknowns. They're responsible for that piece of the mission. So we work hand in hand with them and they prioritize for us what cases we go after. Um, we work about 1,500 cases a year in the wow. Army um, and uh, the other services work there, uh, theirs as well. But those cases are prioritized by the Defense POW, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call them DPAA at this point. Right. Um, but DPAA prioritizes those cases for us and that really initiates our initial search for families and then asking for those families' DNA samples, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Right, no, that, I think you created a clear start point of how it all comes to fruition and your team gets involved. But before we jump into what your team is in the process, can we talk about your team? So you're the chief of the branch. How many, you know, you said you did around 1,100 or 1,000 uh, a year, right? About 1,500 uh, cases we actually work per year. So how big is your team? Right, so I have two sides of it. I have Department of the Army Civilians, uh, and there I have 16 personnel authorized. Um, and four of those are mortuary officers, and they're the ones that handle the case after, it's been after a service member has been identified. The other folks work the case prior to identification. So those folks, um, those 12 folks, basically, they're the ones calling the families initially, talking to them and working with them uh, to get DNA and do all sorts of other, everything else that, that we offer the family records that the military has. Um, we work with them if they request awards uh, listings for the family. Everything that we can do to take care of that family, that's what that, that group does. Mm. I also have 16 contractors that work this mission. Their focus is solely getting the DNA samples from families. So they will also call the families and request uh, and uh, request they provide us DNA samples and coordinate all that. So overall, actually a bit larger than just the Department of the Army civilian population, uh, but to get 1,500 cases a year done requires that level of effort. No, that makes total sense. Um... And it's not a, I would, I'm going to, this is an assumption, uh, but, you know, once you've been uh, brought into the process, your team and uh, remains have been identified and your team starts to look for uh, family, it's not a, we found them, remains are transferred, we're done. Like you just, you, you alluded to a little bit there. Sometimes your team's working with them to go over awards. Do you have to deal with benefits sometimes or anything of that nature? Like it's Benefits are generally have been paid out during the war. So when you, when you think of, of casualty benefits, uh, like insurance, things like that, all of those things were paid out following the war. Um, 
at whatever rates were at the time. What families get today are the mortuary benefits because they've never had a funeral. They never got the remains of their soldier back. So this is family travel. Uh, you know, the same rules apply as of today, but um, you know, if, if you have a brother or a sister or immediate family like that, they would certainly be authorized travel to the funeral at government expense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are the types of benefits um, that we deal with. Again, the mortuary benefits that all families get. Got it. And then a question before we kind of dive into specifics here. Your team on average manages, you see, you know, 1,500 a year is what you're opening and closing on average. How long is that process usually for one of your case managers? Yeah, it can take a long time. Unfortunately, our cases, because we're having to find family that um, we don't know who they are, um, it's not like building a car. Uh, You don't know what the end result is when you ask the question. So when we go out and look for a family, um, we may be going anywhere in the world. We could be going to to Europe. We could be going to the Pacific. Uh, A lot of our families are in the Philippines. Um, almost any country that people emigrated from prior to World War II, Korea, we probably have to look for families in those areas. So that, can, that adds a huge level of difficulty to our genealogist work and to our work in trying to talk, contact those families. Uh, there's language barriers, there's all sorts of other issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It can take anywhere from a very short phone call with a few days, weeks to get this stuff done, all the way we work some cases two, three, four years before we're able to finally get that that family, get a hold of the right person. And not every family wants to participate. This is totally voluntary. I could imagine what a family, when they get that phone call, you know, especially if it's not immediate family, it's like you said, we went to the cousin and it's been 40 years, 50 years, like. And they never knew the service member personally, and they may never have heard of the service member Mm. um, in many cases. So you can well imagine if you get a cold call from somebody saying, hi, I'm from the federal government, I'd like your DNA. Yeah, Yeah, it it can be an interesting conversation. Right, and then your team now got to prove, no, this is, you are related to this person. You're the only one we can find. Exactly. Right. No, that's a, this is a unique, unique problem. And I'm sure your team never rests. They They don't. They never rest. Yeah. It is a continual effort. Right. As it should be, I think, you know, as it, yeah. as it should be. Um, okay, Greg. Well, part of your role and your team's role is proactive outreach, right? To, to uh, seek out and locate new family members and maintaining contact and continually running DNA samples to find matches and genealogy like you explained. Um, then once you do that, like, how, what do you do? So you get the sample... You guys do that here, for Knox, you got a company? No, so the, um, the Armed Forces DNA Lab at Dover Air Force Base, Maryland, which is part of the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System, Right. Um, they are the DNA repository. Your DNA's up, well, you have a blood chit card up there. I have a blood chit card I've been TDI there. there. Okay. Yep. So we so you know, you know it. With, the, with the JPED up yep. there, right? So yep, Absolutely. I've seen it. So they are the same folks that do what we call ancient DNA. Um, So they are the ones that both gather the family DNA. That's much simpler because it's a mouth swab. So it's literally a cotton swab. Right. (laughs) It's medical grade cotton swab. We send them to the families, they swab their mouth, they put them in a FedEx envelope and they go straight to Dover Air Force Base. The lab takes them, 
they process those family DNA samples, what they call sequencing, and then that goes into their database uh, when they uh, uh, then use that to compare with the DNA that we have from soldiers' remains that have been recovered or disinterred, um, and they do that, and then they take that comparison of the remains, um, and that's where um, the DNA part of the identification process takes place, right there at Dover Air Force Base. So your team stays in contact with them every day? We work Both. with them constantly, correct. All right, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. But it makes sense, too. That's where the repository is. And, and then, right. you know, you have this in 2022, you know, you, you can send these swabs out. They can FedEx them overnight, and you're getting answers. Something, you know, if everything flows within a couple of days, that's, uh, it's got to be a great feeling when your team, and that's going to bring me to the next question. For you and your team, when you go through this process of, you know, you've been contacted by the other agency, the POW, MIA, the accounting agency, we found remains, here you go, you start the process, your end, and you're, you're notifying families and you're making, this is a match. Right. And bringing closure to them or sometimes informing them that you are related and here is this, you know, closure. It's got to be a, a mixed bag of emotions. It, it's, it is different than current death, I will tell you that. Um, the better the, way to phrase it. Yeah, the families that we deal with, um, probably for two reasons. First, because they are not as closely related in many cases. Although we do still have a few mothers still alive from Vietnam. Um, and we do have some siblings that are alive still from Korea and Vietnam. But that's a very small number. Right. Um, so folks that did not have a personal relationship with a service member it clearly is a different type of emotion. It can still be emotional, but it's a bit different. Um, and in some ways, I certainly don't want to say good news because, you know, no death is good news. But on the other hand, getting a service member's remains back after 60 years, 70 years, um, is kind of a joyous event for families. It, it's, it really is a good news. As we say down in the casualty office, this is about the only good news story that casualty has. Um, is being able to find these these guys and bring them home. And I say guys because there is only one woman, and she is a Red Cross nurse uh, that was missing um, during that time frame that we're that we're actively looking for. Right, it, it, it's ingrained in us. I will never leave a fallen comrade. Right. Like, yes, absolutely. You know, we we will continue searching until you know, we have these agencies set up as you identify here, HRC, you know, the Department of Defense Agency, the POWMIA Accounting. We're never going to leave a fallen comrade. We will continue searching until we can search no more, right? Yes. Which, you know. So let me, let me give you a little bit on, you, you asked the question about once we get an identification. So once the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency makes an identification, it's actually the Armed Forces Medical Examiner that officially makes the ID, and they have one assigned to DPAA. They do all the paperwork, and then we get an email from the medical examiner that basically says a, a soldier or Army Air Force's airman, because Army is responsible for the Army Air Force in yep, World War II, we still have them, um, they have been identified. And then usually in about 48 hours, we will call the primary next of kin that we've already identified, and we will notify them of the identification. Then we'll coordinate a time that we're going to go out to that individual's home, or we can also do it over Zoom, which we do a lot more nowadays. Um, but we let the family choose what's best for them. 
and then we go out to their home, we brief them on the medical identification, we brief them on the historical associations that, are, that went with that. If there is any personal effects that uh, were recovered, uh, we provide those to the family at that time. Um, and we then start the mortuary process. There is a casualty assistance officer that, that attends that briefing with us that mm -hmm. is assigned to the family just like any CAO would be to Very the primary next to the kin. process. Exact same thing. And they then become that family's assistant um, from then on and support from then on out. Um, and then, um, you know, the family does, it's almost, it's very close to current death from that point forward. Yeah, that's what it sounds um, like. Yeah, I mean, all of the, the decisions the family makes about burial location, what type of casket, you know, all those kinds of decisions. Um, yeah, we, we work those with the family. Um, family that local travel. CAO office in the area gets involved at that point too. That, that casualty assistance office, yeah. uh, just like here at Fort Knox or any of the other regional offices, yep, they support, they're the ones that provide the casualty assistance officer uh, and any assistance uh, needed uh, throughout the process. So. Okay, no, that, thank you for clarifying that. That makes sense then. Because I was thinking in my head, I guess I should have, you know, you're, you're a case manager doing all that, but there's a, after initial contacts made and what you just explained, you transfer you know, the warm handoff, if you will, to this casualty assistance officer. Correct. And they become the family liaison. Because they, right, they're local and they're going to be the one that if the family has a question or we need something re-signed or something else quickly, mm -hmm. they're right there. They can go do it. No, absolutely. Thanks, Greg, for clarifying that. Uh, so next question, because we're kind of coming up on 20 minutes or so. Uh, yep. But Right now, currently, how many service members are still missing from those past conflicts that you mentioned, World War II, Korean War, and Vietnam? And, and then how many are still out there missing? That were, and then how many burials do you, are going on a year? So the overall missing number is, is over 81,000 for all of the Department of Defense. For the entire DOD. For the entire DOD. So that includes um, about 72,000 in World War II. Uh, over 7,000 in Korea and about 1,500 in Vietnam. Now, of that, Army. Hmm. Um, World War II, clearly the Army has the vast majority because we also have the Army Air Forces. And that, that in, uh, incorporates over 36,000 unknowns uh, for Army for World War II. That's our obvious biggest amount. In Korea, we have 5,700 that are unaccounted for, a little over that. And in Vietnam, 512. So the numbers go down as the conflicts progress. Um, but part of that is because we have not been working uh, Vietnam, uh, or we have been working Vietnam since the very beginning when this whole mission started. World War II didn't become an active conflict until 2010. So our efforts towards World War II really didn't get going until 2012, 2013, when things really got ramped up. That makes sense. It, yeah. So. And then as time went on for us, you know, we obviously we had Panama, we had Grenada, we had Global War on Terror. Our advances in technology and accountability and have made a huge difference. difference. There right. are only a handful of individuals from Desert Storm uh, that are still Desert Storm, Desert Shield that are still unaccounted for. Uh, I believe that's a uh, a Navy uh, pilot uh, who went down in the Med uh, or in the Red Sea. Um, there, are, there are some like that, that, but there's very, very few. Clearly, DNA technology is a huge change uh, to the whole picture. Um, 
But it also, with World War II, what you have to remember is a lot of our losses in World War II, we didn't control the ground after the, after the loss. So the Philippines is a prime example. The Japanese invaded the Philippines in 1941-42, early, and all of the losses from, you know, people are probably familiar with the Bataan Death March and, and the POW camps there in the Philippines, Kabanatuan and others. Many of our losses are from there, and the problem is we didn't control the ground, and so we didn't have good knowledge or be able to bury a lot of these guys or be able to recover them. Um, that is that changed somewhat in Korea, but Korea also had the same problems with the POWs that were up in North Korea. You know, a lot of our losses are from the POWs that were on the death marches from where they were captured up to the Yalu River uh, in North Korea. And we didn't know, we don't really know what happened to those individuals. That's the challenges, you know, that we're, that we're dealing with. Yeah, and those are some big challenges. And then add in that, we you know, there's uh, not many countries on good state-to-state uh, -state relations with North Korea. Absolutely. You know, that, Absolutely. That's a whole other challenge, I could imagine. And that's true in a lot of countries around the world. Um, anytime the United States military wants to come into another country and do this, even though it's considered humanitarian work, um, obviously there are issues and challenges with, you know, military-to-military -military cooperation, you know, getting a country to agree to say, yep, we're going to let members of the United States military into our country. Right. So, Greg, the last question I have before I turn it over to you for any closing thoughts is, if, if someone's listening or, you know, people come across this information and a relative who may have uh, any information or want more information of a, of, of a soldier who is unaccounted for, what's their best source of uh, information? Where should they go? Yeah, the place to go uh, is to go to the Human Resources Command website. That's the best place to start. Um, and when you get onto that, if you just go to search and put in PCRB. PCRB. Right. That will get you to our webpage. It will have our phone number. It will have our email uh, that we have. And that is the best way to contact us, um, especially under uh, the uh, COVID conditions with telework and everything else. Uh, we have come to rely heavily on email uh, because it's much easier to manage. Um, but that's the best way to contact us. And we, we do our best to get back to people within about 24 hours um, and uh, get them get started. Oh, thanks, Greg. And I'm sure that's a team email box. So most it is. your entire team gets to go in there, see the queue. And right. 24 hours is a phenomenal turnaround time. Uh, so, well, Greg, the, thanks for being here. But I want to give you any closing thoughts, comments. Um, sure. I, I just want to uh, relay a little story um, that I think, to me, explains why I do what I do. Um, I had a case in uh, Utah, um, just a little bit north of Salt Lake City, uh, that I went and briefed. He, uh, the service member was a uh, lieutenant. Uh, he was uh, an infantryman. Uh, he'd been lost uh, in Korea, um, captured, and um, he uh, died in one of the POW camps. It was called Camp 5 uh, in North Korea. And um, I went up and I briefed his daughter. Um, and when I got done with the briefing, uh, we had a whole family. It was probably, 
We must have had 30 people there. Um, and it was, a, it was a great family event. Uh, they, were, they were so happy uh, that he was going to be coming home. When I got done, and I have a hard time telling this story because uh, it is emotional, but uh, his daughter pulled me aside and she said, uh, his wife, her mom, was downstairs. She was on hospice. Um, she said, uh, mom was lucid enough when I told her he was coming home. And uh, she said, okay, I'm, I'm ready to die. And uh, we buried him together about two months later um, in Utah. So that's why I do what I do. That's a powerful story, Greg. And I, you, you, know, you know, I'm in the studio, so I get to see the emotion. They can hear it on your voice. I get to see it on your face. Um, and it, that's why we have people like you that here doing this mission because it is important. And as you just laid out right there, you know, I got goosebumps, is that we'll never stop to find our fallen comrades and reconnect them with their family. And their people, their family members out there waiting for closure. Yep. And that's a prime event. So thank you for sharing yes, that. Well, whew, I don't know how you finished that one, but, you know, hey, you know, that's our show for today. And thank you, Greg, for being here and sharing your branch's role uh, in, in this process. Uh, so, hey, in our audience, if you have additional questions, you can go to www.hrc.army.mil or call 1-888-ARMY-HRC. And for clarity, that's 1-888-276-9472. If you like this podcast, feel free. And we ask that you follow us on Google, iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. I'm Master Sergeant uh, Glenn Riddell, and I hope you come back for the next episode of the HRC Personnel File. Your Personnel File is a monthly podcast brought to you by Army Human Resources Command Public Affairs, located at Fort Knox, Kentucky. This episode was produced by Ms. Fonda Bach. It was edited by Mr. Hyang Go. The production was supported by the entire HRC Public Affairs and audiovisual team.